Hey guys, welcome to episode 3 of Give It The Beans. It is my absolute pleasure to be joined today by one of the, in my opinion, top guys in the industry. Part of, well, let's say, the top team of guys in the industry at the current moment for education and all things physique optimization. A man that needs no introduction, but I'll do my best to give him one. It is the one, the only, James Sutton. How are we doing? I'm very well, mate. I'm very good today. Awesome, dude. Awesome. Now, the reason I brought James on is to try and get him to pass on his vast knowledge of biomechanics for those of you that are perhaps interested. Now, I know your first thoughts might be, Vaughn, we don't give a fuck about that. That's far too complicated. However, today, James, my man, is going to put it across in layman's terms. So, James, first off, thank you for coming on the podcast. Massively appreciate it. For those of you who don't know, James coached me for a year from was it 2017 2018 yeah i think it was yeah yeah and we did a we did a decent a decent thing in that time i think but anyway less about me you come off a very <laughs> aggressive prep shall we say so part of it was just getting your body back in a good yeah, place we could you know and that was the one thing um if those of you that listened to the last podcast we kept talking about health being at the forefront and i can honestly say from coming off the arse end of a comp prep where i was on quite a lot of anabolics i felt terrible um James put my health at the forefront really of the the coaching journey um, and got me healthy again and I couldn't can't thank him enough for that but I'm going to take it back to uh, I'm going to talk ask you about your journey a little bit but I'm going to talk about my first memory of James first time I met him so I went down to uh, education camp a seminar down down in Nottingham where James is talking about all things physique development all the way from gen pop all the way down to let's say, your photo shoots, your comp preps. And I still, to this day, use some of that information in the clients that I work with. And that's from competitors who will step on stage, have placed first, second in shows and photo shoots. So I owe a lot to James. So what I'm going to get him to do here is give you guys a brief summary from first time you picked up a dumbbell until where you are right now within the muscle mentors. And for anyone that's been living under a rock, I want you to give us a little bit of an idea of what are the muscle mentors about, what are you about within that team. Um, so if you could give us, I know you said you're going to make it brief, but I don't want you to make it brief, mate. Give the listeners what they need. Mate, you know I hate rambling on about myself personally, <laughs> but I'll give them my best shot. Um, I don't know if I can remember far enough back to go when I used to first <laughs> pick up a dumbbell, <laughs> but like so many of us, it's just a, a love and a passion I had um, right from the age we could start seeing muscles, seeing muscles come through, 14, 15 years old, however that was, doing push-ups in my bedroom, having a dumbbell and just doing creature curls, single arm dumbbell curls. Um, but it, it was always for me as a side point, I potentially assume like yourself, to playing basketball. Um, I tried to pursue a professional basketball career, didn't go as planned, um, but it gave me some great sort of things, sort of discipline-wise and stuff like that with the training side of stuff that I took obviously then more into the gym to try and develop my physique. Um, be, be PT now for 12, maybe 13 years, something like that. Um, did a good chunk at a commercial gym, LA Fitness in Derby, for six years or so. And then did another probably six years or so. It was a bit of overlap time at M10 in Nottingham. Amazing bunch of guys there. Um, so great experience working with like-minded coaches. And really, in a sense, got outside my comfort zone with that. Um, took myself through a photo shoot in the early days of being in there. 
Um, and it's a great environment to build my physique in as well as build my knowledge and obviously the clientele that I was working with. From a physique point of view, then stepped on stage three times. Um, I was never big enough to do bodybuilding, so I always stuck with muscle models uh, categories. I saw that. I remember at the, the seminar, I literally followed you and it, your first photo was you, uh, was it Miami Pro? Yeah. And I was like, fuck, I want to look like that one day. <laughs> and that's why I remember I think I think I was like literally on the lunch break or something like that followed you and thought I'm going to get a photo and since then you've been out angling me for the past two or three years but maybe, you must have got me this year at some point then <laughs> you're on the counter <laughs> maybe now sorry I interrupted you um, yeah. you did but your... still just to give you an idea of one because I know you're always talking a bit of banter out there I was on stage at 112 113 damn uh, just to give you a target of a weight yeah. goal to hit I mean that like I'm I'm about one seventeen right now and I'm just starting recomping from one twenty so I'm a long ways off. Let's just say that. <laughs> right, so you, did, you you work in M ten. You did your sort of mammy pro. Then what happened? Just got to a point. I think where work just picked up so much. We're doing more and more involvement in the education side of stuff. There's a mentorship program and stuff that we obviously built within M ten. That are just dealing and working with more coaches. That I think. Time-wise, for me, I got so busy, and I just think I'd got to the point where, honestly, I'd been training for 15 years, yeah. and I think, well, to take it further and to step on a bodybuilding stage, I need 10 kilos more tissue. Yeah, um, and it just got to that point where I was like, I've got to make a decision: do I try and push my career, or do I try and maybe compromise that and try and put so much time in developing my physique? Yeah, plus you've got to think that for you to add that tissue, the amount of food that you would need to eat, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, it's like I was consuming six, seven, eight thousand calories, pushing the limit of what I could consume there. And looking back, sometimes wasn't the best thing, but um, yeah, to try and warrant getting the body weight on me, uh, just like I was over the moon with the physique that I got at the time, and I never, in a sense, even from a 15, 16 year old kid never had the desire to get on a bodybuilding stage always wanted to look like how i did um as a muscle model classic physique um type look that's always what i strive to achieve so i was over the moon with that and now it's just about holding on to what i can yeah totally so from that point you know you then are now part of um, in my opinion and a lot of people have been one of the most successful education physique development producing online results day after day team in the uk so um how did that come about what are you guys about and what's your role within that team yes yeah, so i just got to the point i think with being at m10 is amazing experience but with everyone they get to a point where they feel like want to move on and um sort of see what else is out there and i decided just to go by myself develop my own sort of business um as an online coach and then soon after I'd done that, speaking to Cal, and he was like, any interest in joining the team? Um, and then really, <laughs> it went went from there. Um, I knew what his visions were. I knew he just obviously had started to have a good bit of momentum with how his own coaching side of stuff, where clientele was going, and he wanted to start to look to do his own education stuff, along obviously with Luke. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'd love to be a part of that. Um, and then I say really just knew that I could continue helping other coaches, which I was hugely passionate about. So give me sort of a bit of a platform to help continue to do with that. And I can still like run sort of coaching uh, one-to-one clients and do everything. So I'm doing on that, just that side of stuff as well, but then still build stuff with Cal, Luke and Ryan um, just to try and help take that brand sort of further and further. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Which then leads me to our probably first question. Um, within the muscle mentors themselves, you can definitely see from your Instagram you are the biomechanics guru of the team. You know, looks definitely up there, but I know you've done a heck of a lot of RTS. James, if you don't know, has been to Oklahoma how many times in the past year? Uh, I did five times. Five times, right? So he spent a lot yeah. of money on educating himself um, and is willing... It's a lot of money when you don't bloody fit in an economy <laughs> seat as well. <laughs> yeah, I need to buy two seats, right? So yeah. the fact that James is willing to come on and talk about um, everything that he, you know, pass on some knowledge to you guys, I find is is amazing. So if we're going to speak about biomechanics first, and I want to talk from um, a coaching perspective, but also a, a client perspective. Let's go with the coaches first. Now, if we were talking about um, putting a, a client through an exercise, what would you say would be the, the sort of basic forces we'd need to be aware of? And I'm, and I'm talking, let's talk a total beginner. So coaching perspective, what do you think would be things we need to be aware of? So we've got to understand that the forces are going to come, one, from internally, or two, from externally. So internally, we're talking about the muscles contracting, creating force, um, and pulling or creating rotation around the joint. So say, for instance, the pec fibers contracting and bringing the arm across the body. So that's where that internal force um, is happening. Obviously, to build tissue, to build our physiques, there's going to be that internal force there. So it's not about, at this stage, is that good or bad? It's just understanding that that's there. Yep. And different exercises will have different amounts of it or things. So it's just understanding there's that internal force going on. And then also there's the external force. So how much weight is actually being applied to us? Is that 10 kilos heavy or light in that position we're holding it or that position we're moving it? Is that 10 kilos on the machine really 10 kilos or are there certain stuff going on with the machine that are making it relatively lighter than the 10 that's showing on the pin or maybe heavier um, than the 10 on the pin? And does that change throughout the range? So if we're looking at it from a very base point of two, whether you're a, you're a PT or just a, someone who loves to train, it's getting that appreciation for 10 kilos is not 10 kilos um and certainly that certain positions we get into may compromise our structure um whereas other positions will probably feel a bit nicer on our structure yeah that's wicked so if we then flip on the side of uh, you know a, a beginner gen pop client they they probably they still feel the gym's a chore the exercises that they're doing they might not like do you feel that there's a sense of they need to be aware or we need to educate them not on everything but just some basic concept of forces that you just named and i think that obviously just telling them where it's heavy and where they're going to feel it would be one but what else do you think they should be aware of from a safety point of view but just from a general education point of view the biggest thing safety wise when we start to look at stuff is are you being forced into a range that actively with a muscle contraction you couldn't get to um so say for instance take a dumbbell press are them dumbbells taking you to a position at the bottom where you couldn't get to without the dumbbell in your hand? Uh, obviously, like the, between the two of us, if we were to form a bench press, we're very unlikely probably to be able to get that bar down to our chest having long levers without maybe the weight on the bar or the bar itself forcing us down sort of a little bit into a range that potentially we shouldn't really go to um, or may compromise our structure if we do go there under load with frequency. Okay, so I guess it's just telling clients, in layman's terms, what we're saying is that telling clients that each individual has a different active range of motion or a range of motion that is 
safe to be within and it's not hey I saw this guy on Instagram you know he had that bar and he took it all the way to his chest and he touched it and came back up and that would actually nicely take us on to a question that's further but I feel it's a little bit complex for the order right now but good example that for example that us with you know massive wingspan um, pretty damn jacked as well though um, <laughs> might not be able to bring a barbell to our chest, fully activate the, the pec and push back up, right? Now, what I liked about James, when I sent him a list of topics and questions, he actually emailed me back and said, well, Vaughn, we should talk about something a bit more basic before we ask that sort of quote-unquote sexy question, right? So when it came to it, he mentioned the word axial alignment. Now, that is a fancy word, and the minute that a beginner hears that, they're going to go, oh, fucking hell, that's a big word. I don't want to know about that. So if we talk about, let's take a leg extension as an example, and we're thinking, right, axial alignment, we have no idea what that means. You did mention there's something called joint internal joint forces. So what should be we be aware of as coaches? And the reason I say leg extension is I had a discussion with someone after the story that you put up two weeks ago. Um, I said, you need to go check out James's story. So I think because obviously you've used that example before, it'd be good to just reiterate it. But from coaching perspective, why should we be aware of that? And then we'll talk about why should a client be aware of that? So when we're looking at axle alignment, basically what we're trying to look at there is, is the joint aligned um, in the plane of movement that we're going through. Um, the reason why that's important, if we haven't got healthy joints, we can't stay in the game. Like, yeah, <laughs> I know that from personal experience, um, playing basketball over the years, number of different ankle injuries, dislocated my knee, um, and then continued to squat and continued to lift maximally heavy. And I'd always, every time I would squat to failure, um, my left knee would always add up a little bit and drop in. So there'd be compromise forces For going person that doesn't know what adduct means so it'd come into the midlines and my knees were basically knocking there we go yeah and and i was squatting with reasonable load uh and going to failure and that over time i believe compromised my left knee particularly um to a point now where like speaking to tom purvis when i was out in the oklahoma and stuff with him he's like the there is arthritic changes in there and he like you just can't train as I know to train because I'm only going to compromise the joint. Yeah. So at no point can I go from having an internal focus of pure muscular contraction and really in, in put intensity into that. So going back to an essential point as to why this is important, if the joint is fucked, there's no way we can build the surrounding muscle. Yeah. So I can't maximally develop my quads my left quad completely and like if we could see my quads <laughs> you see my right quad is drastically bigger than my left so i can just tick my left over and just keep some tissue there and anyone else would probably be happy with it but me knowing where my legs have been at say <laughs> they aren't great for me yeah, <laughs> yeah, relative yeah. to your legs at the moment they aren't great but that's all because i've compromised joint alignment when i train for 10 plus years and it's only over the last five or so plus years that i've really had an appreciation for how important that is so so much go so everyone's trying to think oh how can i build the optimal physique how can i build my upper chest how can i build different parts of my lats or my quads 
and they sometimes put themselves in optimal compromised positions to warrant trying to do that. So 100%. the standard gym goer might twist their toes in on the leg extension to try and work the outer quads. Dude, this is they might this go is super narrow on the hat squat this to my, work. That was the, my the question to you. Or anything. So. Um, in regards to the leg session, I know you weren't finished, so I just wanted to interrupt you. You mentioned turning the toes in. I The conversation I was having with this individual was he was turning the toes out and he was talking about hitting his VMO, right? For those of you who don't know the VMO, the teardrop part of the quad, when you see someone with big quads, that's what the VMO is. So his uh, his analogy was he turned his feet out and he felt it more there in, in brackets, right? And what I said is I said, you need to go watch James's story and he mentions that you'll get maximum force output from joint alignment. And then I talked about the last 10 degrees it coming on and whatnot. Um, so how important is that? As you, like you said the words developing physique. So how important would we say not only joint axial alignment, but what does that mean in regards to force production where we want it to? So, for example, on the leg extension, if we turn our toes out, are we actually getting more muscle contraction in a certain area of the quad? Are we getting less? Are we producing less force or more? The, the issue probably is that what's really going to happen, if there is a compromised joint structure in any way, the nervous system is going to downregulate force production. So you can't get as much development of tissue. Whereas if we can line everything up, um, and the joints in a happy place, then we're going to be able to then produce more force, lift more load, and get more from it. And when it really comes down to, it, I think I'm sure Jordan Peters put a post out um, about this a while ago. And if you're going to respect anyone's opinion on training, oh, yeah. building, and it'll be his. <laughs> yeah. um, the, about building the lateral, your lateral quad, the outside of your leg. Can you make more of a, a sweep that pops out? Yeah, you just had to train uh, hard, didn't you? Yeah, and it's just like, just train fucking harder. <laughs> because it's not, and it's, you can't develop, the say, different portions of your quads to that extent because you're going to compromise the joint position. And if you start looking at EMGs and stuff, you might get a very, very tiny percentage extra on that VMO or that quad, depending on your positioning. Um, but it's only going to be at a level or it's only going to be the fact that it's going to compromise joint integrity over time if you're doing it with intensity. Yeah. So if someone, someone's going to touch that area or something, or you're more aware of the area, or you're looking at area, you're going to feel it more. So probably what's happened with your mate is he's more got more sight on the VMO, on the middle part of the inside of his quad. Yep. He's maybe put his hands there to try and feel it, and straight away then he's got more sensory input from that. Yeah. So just because there's more sensation there doesn't mean that you're getting more from the movement. Wicked. Now, I'm going to just, again, inter not interrupt you, but pick something from there, from the beginner that maybe perhaps doesn't know what downregulate the nervous system means. So if you could just give us a bit more info on what that means during that movement so that they could get a little bit more understanding from that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, just if you align everything up optimally um, through your knee when you're sat on the leg extension there at maximal output you may be able to produce 100 kilos worth of tension through your quad yep but if your knee's in a slight compromised position the body's not going to allow it to produce that same 100 kilos because it feels it's going to be there's going to be some pain or discomfort um, in the joint or maybe it's going to compromise something tendon or ligament wise so the 
brain is going to send us almost a signal back to say, no, don't apply that 100 kilos worth of force because it's going to compromise something. Yeah, and if it's online, like, no, you can fire everything, go. Everything's working. You have a good day. You can use that full maximum capacity. Yeah, wicked. I was just wanting you to say the brain signal to the muscle because people yeah. might not know that's how we get a muscle to contract in the first place. Um, now, perfect, mate. I think that explains it. And probably, now, everything today is quite complex. So I think that's the most basic way we can describe a complex scenario, right? And if we were to try and be here and make it any less or more basic, we'd be here for two hours. Now, following on from that, and this might perhaps um, be a little bit more quote-unquote advanced, um, the words resistance profile, strength curve, um, are thrown about quite a lot. And in reality, some people might say resistance curves, um, you know, strength profiles, and, and not really know what they mean. So I wondered, can you give the audience a description of what these are and if these are things we can perhaps play about with in the gym to perhaps make training uh, a little bit more effective? Um, so if you could just give us a little little example, a uh, little bit of a description of that and then we'll maybe talk about an example thereafter of where we would see differences. Cool. So firstly, we've got like talking about strengths profile and resistance profile understand just trying to some people get confused in the early days between the two strength think of ourselves so we have strength so that's where are we strong and where are we weak resistance think of a resistance machine so when is that machine heavy or light yep. um and to put it in as simple as complex that's probably the best way i can put it if i was to try and quote tom purvis because he was the person who initially came up with these so anyone who uses them is really stealing his stuff, but they probably don't realize it. Yeah, so using strength profile, resistance I, profile. I, I tell you, I didn't, I not even I knew that, so that's awesome. I'll quote so him. He was the time. first person who sort of quoted it in a sense, but it's a graphical representation in the changes in strength generating capacity that occur throughout the joint range of movement. So, as we take a joint through its range, at what point basically are we strong and at what point are we weak? So, okay. if we could use an example for that let's talk about the knee joint itself and yeah so in the top of that leg extension if we're say at the top there trying to hold that contracted position we're weak in that position because a number of different reasons but the muscles fully contracted and there's stuff going on internally within the joint um as well that makes potentially makes it makes it weaker as well okay brilliant so that's one boom strength yeah strength profile what about if we think as you mentioned we have strength well people are now thinking right that's cool what's the resistance profile what's that about so the resistance profile i think resistance machines if you're trying to remember which one's which um but basically that's just the changes in resistance talk um so again when is that machine going to be heavier or lighter Working. So the machines aren't strong or weak. They can't be strong or weak, but they can be heavy or light at certain points throughout, throughout the range. So it's time to have an appreciation for, is that heavy? Is that machine heavy where we're a little bit stronger? Um, and is it lighter for where we're a bit weaker? Or is it opposing? Or does it not really change throughout the range? Or what's going on? Because as I said right at the start, 10 kilos isn't 10 kilos unless it's sat there on the floor. Yeah. Who's we're bringing that into an exercise? That 10 kilos is changing, um, depending on how far it is, the sense it is from the body. Um, and especially if it's on the machine, then depending on what's going on the machine, 
with different cables, levers, cams, so many different things. And again, that's going to potentially change how heavy or light relatively that 10 kilos is. Wicked. So using those basic concepts, I'm calling them basic, they're pretty complicated, right? But using those two concepts, would you think there's a way we could manipulate an exercise? Now, I'm going to, for those of you that maybe don't have something called a pendulum squat in your gym, I'm going to use this as an example of perhaps you could touch on, on that exercise, could we manipulate it so that we were perhaps, you know, there was a drop-off somewhere, and by drop-off I mean that where we're weak, can we get a little bit of a help, or where we're strong, can we make it harder so that we get perhaps more muscle contraction out of it. So if you could take listeners through perhaps how we could do that, that'd be fab. I think, just if you don't mind taking me a sense back a step. Okay. Um, I think it might not be exact reason, but I think the reason why Tom and Issy started to think about this was more from a an injury rehab perspective. And like I say we, but in general where the industry's at at the moment, we've taken it more in a physique development point that how can we make things harder in a sense, where he was more looking at it from the other side, that how can we make it easier at certain points within the range or within the movements because when you're trying to rehab yourself from an ACL tear or if you have any sort of impingements or anything, just something where your, your muscle tissues drastically drop down or you get to a point where your body is com- compromised, yep. then just doing a, a normal, say, say leg extension because we're talking about that, just trying to do a noise and create a contraction at the top might be extremely hard when that weight on the machines can be heavy when you're getting really weak. Yep. So it was actually used initially as to try and understand from a rehab perspective is how can we understand, well, is this machine set up a machine that little bit lighter where we're going to weaker so we can get a contraction throughout maybe a full range. And then it was started to brought into the performance physique development side of things where like, well, how can we make this fucking hard? <laughs> how can we make sure yes. throughout yes. every point in the range as we get to them last couple of reps, that you almost fail throughout every inch, but you don't quite. Yeah, totally. That, that Whereas, again, yeah, I guess that's what I was getting at mostly because of the trend on social media and personally because I now do all that shit because you guys taught me it and I think it's awesome. Um, but very good point of backtracking. So so let's say the, the end goal really with this with looking at strength profile resistance profile and all these confusing term, terminologies in a sense to how can we make the exercise harder with what we're doing yeah. rather than just failing at one point in the range how can we try and start to almost fail throughout the whole point to in an area where we're stronger the loads can be heavier in the area where we're that little bit weaker it's going to be lighter cool. so going back to your pendulum squat example any squatting movements, um, just going through the squatting process, when we get to the, I'll say the bottom, uh, we're going to be at our weakest. Some people have got an ability in a sense to fold up. So they get to a point where they can literally get their hamstring touching their calf. When you can, If you can try and visualize their bum comes closer in, their bum and their knee get closer together as they get right down to the bottom. James is really good at that, by the way. keep going but as a general rule I'm going to say that everyone's their weakest when they're at the bottom of a squatting movement 
So although you're not purely squatting, like with a traditional barbell on your back and a pendulum, which is still, still going through a squatting movement. So at the bottom of that movement, we're going to be our weakest. And then as we push through at the top of the movement, we're going to be our strongest. Cool. Um, that's not so much muscular torque production. That's more of a structural strength at the top. Um, For those that don't know what torque is, what is torque? So it's just... Uh, the ability for a muscle to create force around an axis um, when we're looking awesome. at this sense. So, um, so from a, like on that leg extension, the torque production from the quads at the top of the leg extension is at its lowest. Perfect. Perfect. So then I'm also saying, but then if we look at the pendulum squat, we stood up, the knees almost straight, or maybe it's going to be fully extended. Um, so from a muscular torque production, the quad can't produce much force. But now at this point, the hips and knees are close to the line of force created from the weight. So there's nothing, everything's almost in line in a sense, you could say with gravity. So if a weight was to, if we're looking at a normal squat, if a weight was to be on your back and drop down to the floor, it's going to drop in a sense through your hip and through your knee. But as we squat down, that hip and the knee are going further from that sort of imaginary line um, of a weight that would be dropping sort of from your shoulders. Yeah, Does that so make sense on... <laughs> what, what I was about to say, if you're listening to this, whap up your phone or your laptop, Google what a pendulum squat is, and then you should be able to put two and two together from what James yeah. is away to say about as we're going through the pendulum squat movement, he's just talked about what happens with the muscle, but what I want to talk about is the machine, and as that moves, are we experiencing it being any easier at any point through the movement and is it harder at some moments and if it is lastly which would be the advanced thing can we make that harder so yeah. everyone's got their laptop up james they've got a pendulum squat um you know it might actually even have the picture of i remember m10 cal was on the um example on the pendulum yeah, like and 75 you, kilos yeah yeah right when, and he weighs that now right he's dieting he weighs, he's dying <laughs> pretty hard, so he's, he's close, closer than he'll ever be. So we know what the muscle of the quad is like and it's what force is doing throughout the movement, but talk me through the machine. So with a pendulum squat, it does change in load. So say, for instance, we're putting 20 kilos on there. Um, that 20 kilos, as you go down in the movement, will be getting slightly lighter, but not a considerable amount. So again, it'll be a tough one to try and try and visualize, but in a sense that as that's dropping down, it's getting closer to the pivot point. Like or you almost as you're doing the movement, you can see in front of you. So there's an axis that like the, the weight pivots round. So it's in a sense it's getting closer to that. So it gets slightly lighter, but relatively to how much weaker we're gonna get in the bottom of a squat movement, um, it's nowhere near enough. Cool. And that's usually the opposite right so if someone's ever used a pendulum you go to the bottom of it and you think fucking hell yeah brilliant this is easy this is this is going well and then you go to come out of it and then what happens come out the bottom of the hole i mean yeah yeah it starts to struggle and fail yeah which which i remember the first time i used it, it was humbling as such yeah yeah because of like the extra range because of the angle it's at the angle of the foot place like that you can generally get a bigger range on that than you can with a normal squat or it feels nicer than sometimes a hack squat depending on your mechanics and stuff but a lot of times it'll feel nicer than that so, so you get into it light and it feels good but then you start adding load and you realize no it doesn't drop anywhere near enough for those that maybe haven't put two and two together 
why does it get harder as you stand up? So that weight then is getting further from the axis point that a, the lever is pivoting around. Um, and for someone of your height, James, now, for those of you who don't know, James is actually seven foot. Is it? <laughs> six, six foot seven, right? So for someone of your height, why would that be a little bit harder than perhaps um, your wife who's five foot two, three on a good day? Five four, but... <laughs> five four right? So for, for you being so tall, why would that be harder for you? So the weight is traveling through a bigger distance, but um, so it does get relatively slightly harder because I go through a bigger range. So then it gets to a point where it's maximally furthest away from the axis. Um, but the real, I don't know if this is the, why you're asking the question, but the real reason why it's harder is because I've moved through a bigger excursion. There's more inertial effects. Oh, that's a big word, excursion. From, <laughs> from that. <laughs> so as I'm going down, if I go down quickly, not necessarily under control, that weight wants to keep going down. Yep. So say, for instance, like if we drop a 10 kilo weight from a foot off the floor and drop it onto our toe, it's going to hurt, but it's not going to probably break our toe from a foot. Yep. But if we drop that from five feet, that same 10 kilos and drop that on our toe now, it's likely to break our toe. Right. So the quicker the weight moves, the more momentum it's got, the more inertia it's got with it. So inertia is simply, if something's moving, it wants to continue moving, if something's still, it doesn't want to move. So when that weight on the end of the pendulum is coming down, it wants to keep coming down. It doesn't want to go back up. So myself going through a big excursion, I'm dealing with that 20 kilos, but I'm also trying to control the ability to change the direction. And that's, I've got to come up with more force to warrant doing that. Right. Now, I just want to add... On the flip I, side, sorry, as I'm, if I'm trying to explode up, um, it might want to keep on going. Yep. Uh, and if they're going through a big range and exploding through that, it may want to keep on going. It may almost feel like it's going to pull off my shoulders at the top. Because it wants to keep going on the way down, but it also wants to keep going on the way up if you're using an explosive contraction. Yeah, I just wanted to add that in for the maybe perhaps ones that are listening that have a decent knowledge and, and they wanted those sort of knowledge bombs. Now, this might perhaps lead us really, really nicely on to the, the next thing I want to talk to you about. Now, banding machines has gotten super popular recently um, from not only just people watching someone on Instagram, but also from perhaps education camps that I learned a little, I, I learned a lot about, I wouldn't have used bands if I didn't come to see you guys. Now, a lot of people maybe perhaps are misusing them and maybe are using a, a wrong sort of color or um, however much the, the band will pull. So if there's perhaps a coach out there and he's, you know, he's fairly knowledgeable, he knows how to program, it's everything safe and whatnot. They're thinking, right, I, I want to play about with this myself before they put it to their clients. How would they perhaps know what color of banding to use? Now, I'm going to just use a different example. We use the pendulum. Um, let's use a, let's talk about a Smith squat. Now, the reason I say that, I use that quite a lot. And in commercial gyms, that you see that. Commercial gyms usually don't have pendulum, right? But you're talking your pure gyms, your DWs, your virgins, and everything like that. So if someone's like, right, I'm going to try this sort of reverse banding or whatever that means. Um, I'll get you to describe that in a minute, right? Um, how would a coach, a lifter, be able to work this out for themselves rather than pester you on Instagram uh, because you know you're obviously busy having a newborn? So if you give the listeners a little bit of knowledge of how would they work that out and implement it themselves? 
from a very basic perspective, I'd say trial and error. Like, yes, we can try and estimate. I love that, dude. That's going on, but I have to say, like trial and error. Most people will try one thing and stick with that. They won't really internally think about. Okay, at that point that I was trying to get assistance from the band, or at that point that I was trying to fail, was the band doing what I wanted it to? They just continue to keep it stuck on that same way and not really internally think about. Uh, were they getting what they were wanted out of it? Probably because they don't know when it comes down to it. <laughs> but like a lot of times, that if we've got a base understanding and we've got the ability to make the band a bit longer, make the band a bit shorter, try different tensions of bands, then a lot of times that's the best way because everyone's not as weak as the bottom as the next person. So, like the percentage change or increase or decrease in strength at the bottom to the top, let's say the squat, is potentially different from person to person, yeah. depending on so many different factors that stuff to get into. Um, so, it's not like there's a calculation you can put in to try and figure this stuff out. And I'm going to give you an example here. So, James was coaching me 2017, 2018, and I put up a video of myself on the hack. Now, if you ever used the hack squats at Pure Gyms, they're heaviest things in the world, right? And I remember I sent a video to you or you just saw it on my um, Instagram and when we were on a, a check-in call, I asked you the same question. I was like, how do I know if this band's strong enough? And, and you were literally like, Vaughn, you're still feeling at the bottom of that lift. It's not, it's not strong enough to pull you out of there because you want to fail in the mid-range. Now, for the basic beginner, they've just said, Vaughn, what the hell do you mean? So what I'm going to say is that, what does it mean if we perhaps are taking a Smith squat, for example, if we were to, well, one, what does reverse band mean? And two, what would, what is our sort of purpose of doing so? And, I, and this is going to come from what James just explained 10 minutes ago with resistance profile, strength curve. So you're unsure, go back, listen to that. But if you give the listeners a little bit of why one would do that, what it can create, why it's effective, that'd be great. So the reason why bands were brought into play initially was to try and create a congruent strength profile to resistance profile. So basically trying to make the, let's say, machine heavier where we're stronger. Um, so take the squat example, Smith machine squat. Can we, rather than just having 100 kilos on the bar the whole time, can we use a band to make it sometimes 120 kilos or 140 kilos to make it harder throughout the movement as you get to a point where you're getting close to the top where you're going to be slightly stronger? Um, and then obviously a lot of people then started seeing others band it from the top. They're like, well, this is even better. I can put more weight on <laughs> my ego. It makes me look that's amazing. I, that's what I felt. <laughs> <laughs> I can get three, four plates on it now and it <laughs> looks incredible. Yeah. Um, but the benefit from banding from the top we still get the profile change. So relatively at the bottom, if you're going to failure, you're still going to lift as much as you can. So say for instance, purposes, if there's 100 kilos at the bottom and that's what you can push and that's all you had on there before, you can still put that 100 kilos maybe on there, but now you can apply, so you, sorry, you put more than 100 kilos on there, but you apply the band from the top. So it's dropping down to 100 kilos as you go down into it. And as you push up, it's slowly going 105, 110, 115, 120. But if you were to bottom band it, you'd maybe put you'd put less weight on and the band would be creating the tension. So maybe you'd have a 
say 100 kilos on there and as you push through the band would create that 15 120 so at the top it takes off weight and at the bottom it adds on weight um, but also at the top what it does it helps slow the weight down as you start to change direction um, and that's the key benefit of top banding over bottom banding that it can reduce the inertial effect so it helps slow that weight just drop into the floor um, to assist you out at the bottom so it changes the weight on the machine on the smith machine that you're lifting to make it heavier at some points lighter than others but then also has that massive benefit um, of helping it slow help help slow it down for you um, at the bottom of the movement yeah that's why i love and especially with perhaps someone who let's call an intermediate i probably never use banded work with a beginner right but intermediate to advanced I, because you talk about and you guys are big on you know initiation of contraction and the fact it slows it down they can have somewhat slight pause initiate and if those of you don't know what mean initiate means it just means turn on so if we were dropping down on us on a smith squat and we were thinking right let's get the glutes firing let's get the quads firing and whatnot um i think it's awesome for that because what i see far in far too many gyms and i'm sure you'll see this as well is just bouncing out the bottom of a squat and yeah. would, what would you say you know if we were to bounce out the bottom of a squat why is that perhaps a bad thing and then why would perhaps having the bands on there um, to help us initiate be more effective than bouncing or what, what, what is bouncing out of a squat what is that but I'd maybe I wouldn't necessarily say having the band on there would make it better um the reason why if someone's not aware of their active range and they're going to go to a point where they can use almost passive structures to, in a sense, assist them out a little bit, so then they're bouncing out the bottom, they're then just going to do use more momentum, so they're trying to, get to use the assistance of that band to help them even more. Yeah. So they're, they're fucked either way. <laughs> <laughs> so if they're bouncing out the bottom, putting a band on in it, isn't going to help them at all. So the first thing they need to do and go back and listen to the start of this podcast and look at what we spoke about, about active and passive ranges. Yeah. If they're not aware of the active range through their hips, then putting a band on the machine is absolutely pointless. I think another good thing to add in is that if you are unaware of anything in this podcast, then the muscle mentors have it sorted for you and they do education camps that James will tell you all about at the end of this podcast that you will learn about what resistance profiles are, strength profiles are, and I did them two years ago, a very similar sort of course, uh, James' old place of work, and um, I'll honestly say it's worth every penny, your training will change, um, your thought process of your coach for clients will change, and ultimately you get far better results. Now, I think this nicely sort of leads us on to our next Can question. I, sorry to keep interrupting you. Okay. <laughs> I just feel there's little bits where I always want to cover on these. So like in terms of applying the band side of stuff and even just adjusting and changing the resistance profile, that has to be secondary. Just to reiterate what we spoke about earlier, that has to be secondary to joint alignment, position, control, awareness, ability to contract. So where the change in the profile comes in is it the two extremes one when we're starting to optimize performance and two when we're compromised so if we're compromised whether that's through 
age, probably not people listening to this, but if you're 50, 60, 70 and you haven't got the strength there, or if there's an injury and you haven't been able to work a certain area for a while, or because of different niggles and stuff, then that's when you really need to think about that strength, the resistance profile and what's going on. And if you're looking for, I feel like, maximal performance and getting that extra little bit out, that's when you need to think about it. But if you're in the middle, it doesn't need to be a concern because at, at that point, as throughout each of the other two spectrums is that joint alignment, joint position, staying in the active range, knowing what position is optimal for you. That's all the more important stuff. There's not a sexy, but yeah. that's the stuff that the coaches really need to nail first with themselves, with their clients. Um, and it's only if you're either ends of the spectrum, then really you should almost think about bringing them in um, once you've still got that foundation stuff in. Yeah, so I guess what you're saying is that Bands are really only should be implemented if you really know what you're doing. And, yes. And yeah. if, you, if you don't, just, just don't bother. Yeah, yeah. Just, just focus on trying to keep the climb, keep yourself in good positioning. Focus on slowly trying to build, build intensity, um, and then add from that. Awesome. So, next question I was going to ask you about was: Now we know that exercise selection in a in a program can be totally person dependent, um, but there are often moves and I thought for a long part of my lifting journey or career as you did that there were some must-do moves and you sort of said this uh, earlier on the podcast about the fact you continued sort of squatting so when perhaps your left knee was you know painful sore coming into the midline so could you some like let's take let's take a, a well-known move like a barbell squat as an example and let's just say maybe talk us through why that might not be suited to I was going to say an individual but I'm going to say yourself so if you could tell us why that's maybe not suited towards you but from a mechanics perspective because that's what this is all about um, to give the listeners okay they're thinking right I want big quads and that guy I saw you know has big quads and he squats so I'm going to squat now personally I haven't squatted in three years and I know you've not probably for a lot longer for those of you who don't know James has been in the industry longer than some have been alive He's probably he's probably probably teaching clients how to squat when you're in your in your diapers, but um, you're, trying, you're trying to drop that dig in there. But I did say it at the start. <laughs> so. I had to say it at some point. Had to. But anyway, back to the back to the original uh, question. Why is a barbell squat not good for you, James? When we're looking at a, a squat, there's so much that sometimes comes into our ability um, to squat and to build our say our quads if that's the goal to build our quads from squatting and anyone who has built their quads from squatting is not because they know what they're doing it's because they were built to squat yeah proportionally just the load stays on their quads um and stays off the other areas relatively um it's not because they thought about using their quads they try to adjust their position adjust their alignment adjust their bar position or anything um, it's not because of what they're doing it's just because of how they were built and that's so much the case with all the traditional barbell type exercises whether it be bench press whether it be deadlift if someone built a big chest from bench pressing it's because of how they're built it's not because of the exercise um, so take myself or even before that take what's basically involved when we squat we need to have an appreciation for the range of movement of your ankles, knees, hips and spine that's in a sense part of it and then from there taking that into consideration we'd almost need to have a consideration of 
what's the range of movement of the ankles, but then also relative to the length of the tib-fib. So that's almost one part. What's the length what's of your the femur? What's the tib and fib? And a so femur, for bones, those that don't know. Knee. The bones in between your foot and your knee. Boom. And a femur? Yeah. And the femur, the bone underneath the quad. Good. So what do you need to say in the bones of the legs? <laughs> yes. So a pre the relative length of your femur, um, or the length of your, your quad in a sense, um, that is going to, more technical probably, take that back. It's not the length of your quad because that can vary uh, depending on the length of your femur. Um, but the length of your femur is going to affect your ability to keep upright while you're doing the squat and the ability to keep tension on the quads. That will be the biggest one. They'll all interchange. Um, and then, the, I say, from there, it's a relative, say, length of the spine as well. Um, but the spine can be affected by, in a sense, how much load's on the bar. So relatively, with more load on the bar, in a sense, that's going to make proportionally you be able to stay upright better. So it's almost like equivalent to having a longer spine. So someone's got a long spine and short, stumpy legs, will be able to stay upright better on squats. So take a look at how a baby squats. Yep. Short, stumpy legs, generally shorter femur, longer spine, the head weighs relatively a lot so they can stay nice and upright. So if someone proportionally has them similar um, or has them similar proportions, then they're going to be more likely to squat better than maybe someone like myself who's got femurs that are three feet long. Um, and say it's not the fact of being tall but it's not a height thing a lot of people think oh you're tall you're not going to be able to squat no it's a fact of down to segmental proportion to amount of where you store body weight um, and range of movement if someone tall has got good range of movement through the ankles knees hips spine they've got a shorter relative femur and maybe they've got a massive long torso um, and their center of mass is higher, then they're going to sit into that squat, squat better. Um, so it's not about being tall, it's about the relative proportions um, that someone's got. And if you're not built to squat with load, which I'd say 80 to 90% of people aren't, we're all built to squat without load, we're all designed to sit on the toilet, or probably when you look at it, designed to not actually sit on the toilet, squat and go for a shit. <laughs> um, but we're not designed to handle maximal massive loads on our back and uh, we can get so much more from being locked in a machine whether it's smith machine using that whether it's hat squat leg press pendulum whatever it wherever it may be um, so trying to say the squats the best exercise or a must-do exercise um is just too much obviously a generic generic statement and we can't try and force everyone and anyone into a movement we've got to look at them and see what's appropriate for them wicked i think that clears up a lot that you know, you, you you maybe get these questions as well in the gym. They, they might say, oh, hey, James, now maybe, maybe when you were dieting for your show or something, hey, James, I saw that video you squatting. I'm going to squat. I just did this. I just did that. And I just felt it was time to, to kind of clear up a little bit that there's no must-do moves. Like, for example, uh, God, go upper body, take a, a dumbbell incline chest press. I don't do any dumbbell work for my chest. It is all on machine-based work, and uh, it's grown just fine. So yeah. I just wanted to reiterate on that on that point. I think like two weeks ago was the first time I've done a dumbbell press in probably a year and a half. Yeah, no, just with wanting to bring it back in as like to see how it felt. Um, 
And I say I've just stuck with machines, cables, Smith machines, etc. And since was the last time you done a dumbbell press when I came down to M10 two years ago and we trained like six a.m. in the morning, right? Is that the last time? Um, I think it might have been close to. We done a dumbbell incline, and I'm sure this is quoting James Sutton, by the way. He said, "Let's just put on a twenty degree incline because we can press more from there." <laughs> <laughs> to which I went, "Yeah, let's do that." <laughs> No. Well, that's probably the, probably about the time when I was trying to push the seventies. So yeah. more than likely, stronger. more than likely, we'll say that we'll say it was seventies. Yeah. Now, before we go off on a massive tangent, I'm going to go on to the next question because I realise that we're going on for time here, um, and then we'll finish up thereafter. So, really quickly, we're just going to talk about uh, cuffed work, another thing that's uh, gotten popular in the industry. Um, if for those of you who don't know what that means, it means pretty much attaching a cuff to a machine, and then to a certain portion of the body. Uh, I just wanted a description of perhaps James, quite a brief description of why people would do that, um, its effectiveness versus a, a similar move. I've used an example of a dumbbell lateral raise and a cuff lateral raise. I know that's not going to be a brief description of, you know, it's not going to be a minute, but as best you can, um, what is cuffed work and its, effect, its effectiveness? So I think to try and make it as simple as possible the reason why cuffs are good is it takes other stuff out of it okay so like if you're doing a cuff lateral raise um and your your grip strength was to start to go a little bit because at the end of the workout maybe you've done some heavy pulling or something like that so they're fatigued and at the back end of the workout your grip strength was starting to go maybe a little bit or you're going to fatigue through there or you're doing high rep something and that was maybe being a limiting factor in terms of maximally fatiguing your delts by putting the cuff on and taking the sort of the requirement to grip something, um, you can take the sort of forearm muscles out of the movement, and then you can focus more on the delts. Um, it reduces joint forces, which is extremely tough to explain on a podcast why that is. Yeah. So I'm not even going to go yeah. there. Yeah, but just that, yeah. take, take my word for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it reduces just, joint just forces. <laughs> Yeah. And knowing that then the closer we can bring almost that load to the axis, then the less distance the weight's going to move. And if you remember my example talking about the pendulum earlier, I was saying the difference between myself and my wife moving it, she's half my height. So she's going to move half the distance. So with me moving double the distance she is, there's more weight to control because it's going through a bigger distance. So there's more inertia being created. So by using the cuff, the weight, cable stack, whatever it is we're attaching that cuff to, is going to move through less of a distance, so there's a little bit less inertia to control. And not that, just to say that not that inertia is always bad, but we got to understand that controlling it is a skill, and in the early days, a lot of us don't have that skill there, and we've got to know how to program in the ability to control it. Now, this is totally my question from that. Yeah. James put on a story not too long ago and you said this as well and I've always wondered why and I've I've really this to clients and I've always said I don't know I'm going to ask James or I'm going to ask Luke so now's my opportunity now we're talking about a, a crucifix cable lateral raise for those of you who don't know pretty much lying on a bench doing a lateral raise with cuffs strapped to your forearms yeah. you guys say that because of inertia you can go quite quick on the upward movement based on the fact of how much the machine's not moving versus how much our arms are moving. So yep. I would wonder, what does that mean in regards to 
you know, oh, we've got inertia, so it's a great thing we can go fast. Like maybe I'm maybe that was a poor description or a poor question, but I think you get what I mean. Yeah, it's just trying to envision a dumbbell lateral raise and envision the distance that dumbbell travels from your hip up to maybe just above your shoulder height. Yep. The big, big difference, especially if you've got long levers as well, is a big distance that travels. So, as I said before, the bigger the distance that travels, the more speed is going to be created that you've got to slow down and change direction. Yep. And the issue with that, yes, that's potentially going to create a point in the movement where you've got to come up with more force output through your delts, but then it also is going to come to the point where there's more joint forces. So I think sometimes an easy one to visualize is dumbbell fly. So imagine doing a dumbbell fly compared to a dumbbell press. Yep. The upper arm, the humerus, goes through the same path. So the path of motion through the humerus is going to be the same. But because the elbow is extended, the dumbbell is going through a bigger excursion. Okay. Because it's going through a bigger excursion, the, the pec muscles then have got to come up with that potential more force at the bottom of the movement to try and slow that down. But the bigger issue is the joint has got to come up with more because there's more shearing force. So the humerus wants to be almost pulled forward and up more um, with the fly compared to the press. So because of that massive distance, the dumbbell's traveling on the fly. So go back to your um, lion lateral raise crucifix yep. uh, movement. If you perform, so if you haven't done it, go and do it. Um, but if you perform that movement, look at how far the weight stack travels compared to how far your wrist or your forearm or your hand travels. If you were to hold a dumbbell in your hand, that would go, go through a massive distance. If you look at the weight stack, it'll be traveling potentially half, maybe less, depending on the weight stack, depending on where the cuff's attached, um, distance than your hand travels. So there's less speed being created there. So there's less potential negative joint forces um, that you've got to sort of deal with and control. Brilliant. Love that, man. So I asked them if there was any questions for you before we wrap up with um, a little bit of what your sort of biggest lessons were. Now, this is quite technical. Um, guy called Mike wanted to know uh, if there was any way of biasing the Terry's major over the lats via movements or resistance profiles. For those of you who don't know, uh, Terry's majors and the lats are muscles in your back. And this guy's wanting to know, can we isolate one uh, over the other um, when they're involved in similar movements? Is that right, James? But Potentially, but no, not really. Bro, and... And honestly, you can trying leave to it there. you can leave it there. That would work. That's fine. <laughs> I'm sorry, trying to. I need to get a skeleton out to map the muscles and go through it. Uh, and obviously, doing that podcast ain't gonna happen. I think the answer is he needs to pay James for a Skype call, and James yes. will go through that. With him. <laughs> All right. Um, there's another question here. Um, Said, "Hey James, I've been following you for years now. Um, I remember back in 2017, you were training really hard." Uh, for, that was for a leg session with Callan Vaughan uh, but you bitched out I just wondered to know if you've got your bottle back or not and that was asked by Callan Raystrip <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd chuck that in as a funny one I always wind James up about training legs because as you know he has a bad knee um, but getting serious now um, for in your career to date what's the biggest lesson you've learnt? I'd have to I know it I'd have to say never stop learning 
come on our courses. Um, no, if I was looking at it from a, maybe a training point of view, you probably get the picture from what I spoke about for the last hour now, or protect your joints. Because if your joints aren't there, you're fucked. Uh, you can't build this optimal physique that you're aiming for, you're aspiring towards if your joint health isn't there. So training-wise, that would be my key thing. Muscle aesthetics will come as soon as you get lean and you've got enough tissue. That will come. But without joints, you're screwed. Career-wise, surround yourself with like-minded people um, and be patient. If you're early in the game, say if you're in your first six, 12, two years, don't try and transition into the up-and-coming new business model or use a new business mentor if you haven't got some foundations in place. Work on the gym floor, grind away, love what you do, and then it will come. And if you be around the right like-minded people, whether that's on social media, whether that's within your environment, you're just only going to grow and develop. Yeah. Personally, I'd have to say, if I was to look at that, train your mind as well as your body. Yes. In a sense, remember, every time we're in the gym, it's not purely about training our, our body, it's about training our mind. The better we can get at mastering our mind, the better all areas of our life we'll get. 100% dude. And I think, I was going to ask you the, the one piece of advice you had for coaches, but you just gave it all there. Um, which is awesome. I could add, I could add another bit of advice for young coaches. Do who, I don't want to say young coaches. I'd say coaches who are starting to get successful, because that's probably more of start to look at this. Coaches have been in the industry for a year or two. Um, learn to learn to budget your money and finance. Understand your finances. Brilliant, uh, dude. Because without that, you can't educate that. yourself. Without that, you can't enjoy a holiday with your girlfriend, your wife, whatever that may be. Um, and that's when you'll be looking to, oh, how can I make this quick buck here? Or how can I make this quick buck there? Um, but if you manage your finances and you stay patient, like you're going to be successful. Um, where so many people show off, oh, I got this new car or I got that, and they're early in the game. It's like, and they probably they spent 20, 30, 40 grand maybe on a car over a couple of years, but they haven't got a house. Yeah. So I know that's not relevant to anything we spoke about, but it's just something for young coaches in the game. They like leave your ego at the door um, and get your finances in check. No, dude, I love that. And, and this is why I, those are the two questions I always finish with um, because at the end of the day, it's real life. And, you know, the guys, you, yourself and the guys I'll be bringing on, I will hopefully be getting uh, some of the rest of your team on here quite soon. Um, you guys have been about for a while. You know, you, you know you've perhaps made all the mistakes there is out there and pass it on to coaches that are aspiring and looking up to you guys thinking they're awesome they're at the top of their game I, I want to perhaps not be like them but I want to aspire to be at that level um, just you giving that little piece of advice I'm sure it will um, change the way someone does things and ultimately that's the aim, one of the aims of this podcast pass on knowledge from yourself and you guys now I'm going to wrap up there and I'm going to ask for people that they're wondering who is James Sutton where can I find out more about him What's your Instagram feed? Who are the muscle mentors? Can you give us just in summary where they can find you, um, what your camps are about, where they're based from, a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, Instagram, James slash the muscle mentors. Um, so you'll find me if you search me on that. In terms of the camps and the education side of stuff, um, we've got a camp on not next weekend, but the weekend after. Um, well, it's actually the Thursday, Friday, I say we're running. So the 26th, 27th, we're running our phase one practical. Um, and the 28th, 29th, we're running the phase two. Um, so if anyone wants to book on last minute, we may have one, two spaces left. I'd have to confirm with Luke. 
um, if this is going out in time. But there might be a week to get on maybe last minute there. Um, yeah, we'll, the we'll, make, we'll practical... make sure it goes out in time. We'll make sure. Yeah. So the, the phase one practical is designed to learn, I say all the basics um, of what we need to understand as a coach. So a lot of the things I've started to touch on here, um, but the things around, well, to really understand this force thing that's going on internally and externally, what are some of the key terminology, key things we need? Luke takes a deep dive into anatomy. If we haven't got an understanding of anatomy, then we can never build the optimal physique. Yep. Um, Cal goes through programming and trying to bring it all together. Again, if we don't know how to bring all them pieces together, then again, it's, this stuff is in a sense pointless. We can't get the most from it. Um, and then phase two, we start to delve a lot deeper into machine mechanics, what's going on with that, because they are extremely complex and confusing. That has to come at our second level. Um, and then we start to look at things like the research around blood flow restriction training. That's something that Luke delves into and other things around programming. So, yeah, it's just taking it to that little bit deeper level. And we've also got a theory camp um, that we're running in October. That's the last weekend in October. That's running in London. Um, and that just looks at all the foundational stuff. Again, that's our phase one. So, look at all the foundational stuff around mindset, applying sort of everything we're talking about to coaching around sort of the gut, sleep, um, circadian biology, female hormones, different things that we've got to maybe change or think about with a female client. Um, so it's laying all the foundations that you need to know as a coach um, really within the early days, I'd say, but even for someone who's more advanced um, to try and come and understand as well. And then on another note, keep an eye out in the very near future. Um, some exciting things will be released for 2020 education-wise um, that are being currently put together at the moment. I look forward to attending those because <laughs> I know that well. <laughs> um, from a you know, client perspective, having worked with James and uh, learned from himself and Cal and Luke, um, they are a massive inspiration to, um, should be to all coaches out there on um, not only putting, you know, just getting results but also health in general but I would say if you can, please go to those education camps if you are a young coach and you're looking to inspire, you know, uh, increase your knowledge. It uh, will literally change the way you do things, change your career. Um, it has done for me and uh, it's probably the most successful my business has ever been and still using stuff that I learned from James two years ago. So again James forever grateful for everything that you do uh, in the industry uh, for myself and everyone out there and uh, I'm sure from everyone uh, I just want to give you a thank you from not only everyone at VW Physique give the beans but from uh, all coaches out there so much appreciated mate um, and for the, obviously he has given his contact details James do you have any final words for any, any of them out there? No I think I said a good amount and that is a fair bit of a few nuggets in there definitely we've given away um no, I'd say it's a pleasure to come on. Thanks for inviting us, one, and thanks for giving us the first invite. Or whether you just wanted them two guys first, but they weren't available. Or the fact that I got on first hey. before Luke. I'm happy with that, mate. Hey, it's not a competition, right? It's not a competition, but the aim will still be to get uh, the rest of your colleagues on. And I feel that Ryan is the mysterious one. No one knows a lot about Ryan. So uh, mate, you need to get um, him on, man. He's a very, I'm, very knowledgeable guy. Extremely I'm, knowledgeable. I'm going to yeah. get him on as well, but I'm going to try and maybe, rather than get you all three of you on in a row, I'm going to try. Space I'll for you on in a row. Yeah, I'm going to try and space it out. Uh, but thanks, mate. And uh, take care. We'll catch up soon. Thank you.